Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Goober P Podcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Jesse. And today we're bringing you the very first episode of the Goober P Podcast. So, Kate, why do you want to do this podcast? A lot of reasons. I think so primarily for listeners. We're over here on the west coast of the United States, so we're very, very far away from the landscape, the battlefields, you know, where all of this actually occurred or where most of it actually occurred and uh, I grew up out here in the west but I loved history from a really young age and so when I started learning about civil war history as probably like a high schooler really when I truly became interested um, it was just tough because there felt like there was just nothing out here connecting me to the civil war or to like this time period in history And so after I graduated, I studied history. I went back east a few times, ended up working at some um, some of these Civil War places in the east, but then moved back to the west because, you know, it's my home. Feels right over here. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, the the interest in the Civil War is still there for me. And there's still this like desire to share that with people, even though. It's not necessarily what I'm doing for my job day to day. Um, And so just helping people connect to the Civil War, even if you're over on the West Coast or you feel like you don't you've never been to these places and you don't know who all these people are um, kind of breaking it down for people. Nice. And I'm I'm doing it for similar reasons, but at a at a um, more novice position, Um, I'm interested in the Civil War, but I am by no means even even a aspiring expert, I'm not even close, but I still dig uh, reading about it and especially um, hanging out with Kate talking about it. Um, so the format of this podcast, what we're going to do is we're going to use books, um, history books of the Civil War to sort of frame our podcasts. And the first book we're going to use um, is my personal favorite. It's uh, it's a author uh, named uh, James McPherson. Well-known, well-known yeah, Civil War author. Well-known. <laughs> um, and a little, uh, a little story, story time already. I know we're early in the pod, but I emailed James McPherson when I was teaching middle school social, social studies. And I just was like, Hey, shout out. You know, it was the pandemic, so I didn't have a lot going on. So I just emailed <laughs> one of my favorite authors and I was like, Awesome book, dude. Honestly, I just love this book and thank you very much for writing it. And he got back to me the next day and from that time. It was like one of those moments where you're like, oh my gosh, I feel like I've just interacted with a celebrity. Yeah. Um, So shout out to James McPherson. Yeah. What a nice guy to take the time to just write, you know. I was envious of Jesse when he told me this, that James McPherson emailed (laughs) him back. I was like, what? (laughs) It was it was cool. But anyway, his book, Battle Cry of Freedom, is what we're starting our podcast with. And after his book, we're hopefully going to be doing more. And one Um, of the reasons why we thought Battle Cry would be a good book to start with is it's really comprehensive. So it's like the whole Civil War era. So it goes over like pre and then the war itself, those four years, and then the post a little bit. Um, But it's designed to be kind of an entry point. For folks who are curious about the topic. Which is hilarious because it's 800 plus pages. <laughs> so it's a great book. I don't see it as a beginner's guide, but that's what Kate says. Entry point. Entry point. Entry point. I mean, it's like, it, it, as Kate 
uh, told me earlier, it, w- it was a Pulitzer Prize winner. Yeah. Um, and it, according to um, New York Times, I believe, yeah, the New York Times, it's um, his- historical writing at the highest order, mm-hmm. of the highest order. So, you know, I think we've pumped up the book enough now we can start um, with chapter one. Uh, chapter one is called United States at Mid-Century. And before we dive into chapter one, like Jesse was saying, we'll look at different books, but then each time we have one of our new podcasts, we'll break down just a couple chapters from each of those books. Because like you said, this book's like 800 plus pages. So we're not going to cover the whole book in one pod because that's a lot. So we're going to talk about a few chapters each time. I also just wanted to spend more time doing it, you know? (laughs) So two chapters at a time. This is going to take forever. There's going to be like 14 episodes for one book, I think. I'm okay with that. So, um, all right, let's get into... So United States at mid-century, and this is talking about mid-1800s, and it can be characterized, uh, according to McPherson, by growth uh, for the United States. Um, Population, territory, and the economy... And I'm talking about doubling in population and then doubling again. Um, just a tremendous amount of land, timber, uh, water, um, and just completely uh, extracting <laughs> materials from the land to build a to build a, a superpower. Really, the start, the, the beginning of yeah. one. And we, we, I don't know what order you want to go here, Kate, but on some of my notes, I have improved transportation. Um, American manufacturing, the system of American manufacturing. So where do you want to start with this chapter? What stood out to you? I think I think talking a little bit about the population to start with. So like population growth, you mentioned it doubled and doubled, right? Like this is an exponentially exponentially growing nation. I think starting with population, is a good point because it's the people that make up the country. It's the people who are doing these, you know, infrastructure and industry projects. So I like the idea of starting with talking about a little bit about the population, what's going on there, and then moving on to some of those other aspects of American growth. So do you want to talk about the people um, on the East Coast? I mean, we're leaving out large groups of people, but predominantly it was an Anglo- uh, Protestant population prior to the 1830s, I want to say. Somewhere in the 1830s and 50s, uh, non-Protestant immigrants begin to arrive, upsetting the quote-unquote nativists. Yeah, I Gang, mean... Gangs of New York, shout out, Gangs <laughs> of New York. The, the other key part of the population that McPherson is counting that folks at the time, depending on where you lived and what your political beliefs were, you know, would have depended on if that group was, you know, part of that population count. But of course, we can't ignore the enslaved population in the United States at the time, which is around 4 million people, if I remember correctly. So it's a big chunk of the population. Um, And then, you know, folks in the North had certain opinions versus folks in the South. And of course, there's no... There's a broad range of of opinions, both in North and South. Um, But so that's a key part of the population of the U.S. at at the time. And one could say that that, you know, this issue of slavery, which we'll be talking a lot about all the way throughout, 
kind of underpins some of the population tension, right? The tensions between different sections of the U.S. population at the time. But I do think immigration brings in some other kind of tensions within that population, like you were saying with the folks who were um, Protestant, who weren't huge fans of Catholic immigrants, um, or that idea of being a nativist versus an immigrant. Um, interesting parallels to um, other chapters in American history there. In pushing that tension that you're talking about, so many things are dovetailing so that you have the arrival of um, different types of immigrants. You have this American system of manufacturing, according to the Brits. They are calling, they're calling it that, mm-hmm. where individual workers are being replaced by machines that can uh, repeat parts that are interchangeable. Yeah. And it leads to more of an industrial capitalist worker force where people are becoming workers and not really owners of their work it's it's setting up more of a class structure yeah um and and tensions that way as well definitely Um, and there like i said there's a broad range of how much that's happening if you go to the different regions and different sections of the u.s at that time um so like that's much more you know it's happening across the board but it's much more elevated or quick uh in some of the northern states like new york massachusetts like those kind of far northern states um that american system shifting from like a skilled craftsperson doing the whole process of whether it's making a shoe or building a house or creating cheese um to single workers doing little parts of that task so it's like one worker does one part and then it goes to the next and then they do the next step and then so on. The, so they have some good examples or McPherson writes about some good examples of like farmers are no longer consuming most of what they grow. Right mm-hmm. now they're shipping it to be sold elsewhere and then they're purchasing those other things that they need to eat and live on and, and so on. Right. The, the folks in the north who are benefiting from this manufacturing and this industrial lifestyle are now now they have the capital to invest in canals roads um railroads Mm -hmm. and uh that's going to play a big factor as we head into the civil war what if you could just tell us mid-century like 1850s what are some of the main differences in the north and the south at this point the south was a slave-based plantation economy right so they were producing a lot of raw materials namely cotton was the biggest export Um, and they were relying on an enslaved workforce to do this so there were a few folks in the south who owned quite a few enslaved people who were then producing most of these cotton exports now the cotton was going either to the north to those factories right to turn into textiles but a good amount was also going overseas to britain and um again, be turned into textiles. This is a really lucrative business at the time. So one of the interesting things when we talk about, you know, the idea of cotton and that like slave-based economy is that the Southern states were obviously protecting that economy. It was their livelihood. It was, you know, more than that, you see this sense of you know, nationalism and Southern nationalism springing up around this issue of slavery. But the Northern states were also 
you know, involved with this process, right? Because they were benefiting from this relatively inexpensive cotton and then making money off it because they were turning into textiles and then selling that. And um, so it's just an interesting nuance to it. I think this is a good time to shout out another author or another person that Kate talks a lot about, Brian Stevenson. And if you could remind me, what does he say about the South? Brian Stevenson, my person, one of my personal heroes, he's actually a lawyer and he founded the Equal Justice Initiative, which is headquartered in, I think it's Montgomery, Alabama. And a lot of his focus is on like today. So like what's going on today, especially in terms of uh, jails and prisons. So his organization is really focused on folks who were wrongly sentenced or who were sentenced to life without parole when they were juveniles and like helping those folks in those situations. However, one of the things I really have a deep respect for about Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative should not be surprising because I love history, um, but he has grounded his whole philosophy and ethos in history, right? And and kind of in a in a way that's like, no, duh, it's inescapable. So what he talks about is a lot of the things that we're seeing and dealing with and experiencing in our present day 2024 world have their roots have ties in this time period whether it's the civil war or pre-civil war and so he talks a lot about you know the legacy of american slavery and um all i think this is the exact quote but if not it's a slight paraphrasing um as he says the the injustice of american slavery was not the involuntary servitude It was the creation of the idea of racial difference, right? This racial hierarchy that was created with American slavery. The involuntary servitude is not good, but what he's basically saying is American slavery created this idea of racial difference and racial hierarchy that was in the United States, in the colonies before that. And we still, like, that is the root of so much of what we're talking about encountering in our modern United States world today. So Brian Stevenson's great. <clears throat> I want, I wanted to mention him just because that is such a, it's such a gnarly topic. I don't want to um, go at it too lightheartedly. Yeah. And, and this will be a pretty lighthearted podcast on my part, just because I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not an expert. I'm more, if I can throw a basketball analogy at, at you folks, I'm more of the John Stockton to Kate's Carl Malone. Or Let's get a women's the, basketball reference. I'm the Sue Bird to uh, Brianna Stewart, Kate's Brianna Stewart. Go. I'm trying to throw up some alley hoops so Kate can <laughs> can uh, ISO on some some knowledge. But I just wanted to talk about Brian Stevenson or others who know much more about yeah. the issue of slavery than yeah. I would do. So that if you're interested in it, you can go check them out and and learn some more. Yeah. So um, I want to go back to this idea of like. Going from a single skilled craftsperson to like a, a, a set of a worker, workers. A worker. Yeah, to a worker that each have a role in producing a finished product. Um, as I was looking through this chapter, it was just kind of amusing because I was just like kind of thinking about it. And like we see that today, right? We see in some of the upper classes of American society or middle or upper class, this idea of like, I want something handcrafted from start to finish by, you know, a local 
person who I know their name and I can mm-hmm. support their business, oftentimes more expensive. But I just kind of got, a, you know, saw that parallel. For a while, there was this strong emphasis in the U.S. and maybe there still is on, you know, cheap goods that like you could just consume. And I think now, especially, and maybe it's always been this way with like upper and middle classes, um, this preference almost for small, handcrafted, artisanal, that type of thing. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I just thought it was interesting that McPherson talks about with the shift from those small farmer communities, kind of like Thomas Jefferson's Mm. dream of like everybody's living in these tiny little farms and they're they all own their own very idealistic dream of Thomas Jefferson. And you see this shift into the American style of manufacturing with that. You have this people people are starting to consider what workers rights are. And as the worker unrest begins to unfold uh, you see people being like well if you think this is bad they they start comparing it more to slavery Mm. and as that um, those workers rights are over here this you know the issue of slavery begins to that becomes more stark of a contrast than the yeoman farmer versus slavery another super quick just a modern parallel i just I was reading about this like context as we lead into mid 1800s US and it was nice because it was just like, man, our moment is not unique at all. (laughs) So many of the like issues that McPherson is talking about, um, so many of these like struggles or strifes or tensions, not all of them, but many of them you can find echoes like a more modern version of today. Right. People are complaining about like machines or taking people's jobs in in the 1800s. We still have those conversations today or parenting, too. Yeah. Education, like all of these things. And I again, as someone who likes history, I like to like look backward to inform my looking forward. And um, whenever people are like, America has never been, you know, so divided on fill in the blank issue, whether it's education or industry or mechanization or whatever. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't think we're that unique in 2024. Um, so I appreciated that McPherson is just kind of like reminding us like these conversations we're having are all kind of tied. They, they come circling back, right? Different machines, same topic. Um, do you want to touch on the child-centered nurturing, I don't know, comment or, or section of the first chapter? Um, do you remember anything about that? Um, is this when he's talking about education? Yeah, education. Um, the nucleus of the family was more centered around the children. And then, yeah, their education. But this becomes one of the main arguments of abolitionists of that time period of like, how do you put all that, that uh, emphasis on family and children? And then you break people up by, Oh, right. Because by 1807, the, um, the slave trade in the, had been abolished. Um, and so all of the, the international international slave trade, Atlantic slave trade. Yeah. So by that time, the U S at least not legally, Right. was not importing more right. slaves. Um, so slave owners are are also uh, 
encouraging slave family, even mm-hmm. though um, there's no legal, their marriages have no legal right. They're mm-hmm. encouraging slaves to reproduce and have kids and mm-hmm. have families in order to support the economy. The southern, the southern slave-based economy. based economy. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But so anyway, it just it just got me thinking about um, how it, in that same time period in the mid-1800s, there's this shift uh, with that manufacturing style, with the demand on the economy of educating children, yeah. um, raising them in a different way than mm-hmm. just thinking of them as like labor almost. Yeah, and I think... <clears throat> Generally, I don't think exclusively, but again, I think this kind of falls generally along regional lines because what you see is in the northern states, there's a a much larger emphasis on education for all kids. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the southern states, there is still an emphasis on education, but mostly it's for folks of means. Yeah. And there's not necessarily as much infrastructure for like a school system as there is in those Northern States. And I think, um, that just kind of that permeation, that more widespread education in the North is increasing people's awareness. And in some cases, a lot of those schools are tied to like, uh, churches or religious institutions. So there's like a strong ethics and morality that these students are learning in those Northern schools and then you see this larger awareness and kind of a more people engaging on the ethics and morality of the United States and what's happening. Yep. Um, other notes that I wrote down. So I've got Uncle Tom's Cabin. Do you want to talk about that at all? Read it. I, I feel <laughs> like a lot of people, if they had middle school history. Um, yeah, I actually didn't read it in school. Well, we didn't read it in school. We knew what yeah. it we knew about its effects on... Yeah, on I feel like my exposure to Uncle Tom's Cabin in school was... It was like two paragraphs in the textbook. Right. Talking about Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin and how it opened a whole group of white northerners' perspectives to yeah. the experience of enslaved in, experience of enslaved people. Well, well we um, could talk about... I mean, with railroads, with factories, with canals... All this, all these other um, parts of the economy we're talking about, media also becomes much more accessible uh, during this time, and so we, I mean, that's where Uncle Tom's Cabin comes in yeah. and makes a massive impact on people's feelings of of slavery. Absolutely, yeah. Not just the, you know, not just this example of a book, but like there's an explosion in newspapers and they're being published more often. There's like women's magazines that are starting to circulate. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of different media that's coming into play. Let's see. So and then I also wrote free labor, industrial capitalism versus slavery, Um, just because um, this is this is this begins this sort of debate. What is this nation going to be? Is it going to be what we say? Is it going to be, you know, a different way in the north, a different way in the south? This McPherson does a good job setting up that tension. Right. Right. Between like these are two starkly different economic systems within one country. Right. And it's very regional. It is very sectional in its nature. It's like defined by regions is like one type of economy versus another 
starkly different economic. The the next note that I wrote is what we're going to spend most of next chapter talking about. Um, Manifest destiny leads to a powder keg of a young United Mm, States. So go out west, young man. The land is yours. Do with do with it what you may to acquire wealth. Um, But as as territory gets added, the question of will it be slave uh, or free begins to really tear us apart. And that will take us into chapter two, which which is called Mexico will poison us. Do you want to move on to chapter two? Should we take a break or anything you want to say about the manifest destiny part? Uh, <laughs> there's I, a lot. There's a lot to say. I have a lot to say about manifest destiny, especially as someone who lives in the West, yeah. like modern oh, yeah. day. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's more in the chapter two bucket. Yeah. Unless, like, I think the author uses manifest destiny as a bridge, like to end chapter one and then to like interest into chapter two. Um, but it is. Especially for someone or for two people who were born and raised in the West, like the Pacific Northwest. Yep. It's really interesting to talk about Manifest Destiny. Yeah. And I, I liked reading this first chapter because the whole time I was thinking about Native American treaties out West at this mm-hmm. time. You know, we haven't really got into 1855 territory no. yet with our reading of McPherson. But, you know, for oh. us in our area, 1855 is a massive uh, massive t- uh, year yeah. in history. Well, not only that, but like, so I work in public history. So the, the history I deal with day to day is like 1830s, 1840s in the West. And mm-hmm. so it's always just a nice, interesting kind of refresher on what's going on back East right. with like President Polk and all of that. Because so often I'm thinking about the 1830s and 40s out here in, you know, quote unquote, Oregon country. Yep. Um, what do you have in Oregon country in the 1830s and 1840s? Who's out here? Oh, native nations, native nations. But who else? I mean, that's the obvious one, but um, fur trappers, fur missionaries, trappers, missionaries, Catholic and, Pres- and Protestant. Right. Um, you've got British the, folks the out here. You've got French Canadian. You've got mixed race. You've yeah. got a whole interesting... But by and large, it was still uh, native yeah. native country. One hundred percent was. And so, anyway, I, I, we're we're both going to be thinking about that. One thing that I'm I'm I wish I could, um, talk more eloquently about is the native presence during the Civil War. I don't know how much. Um, I mean, we, you know, Eli Parker, of course. There are certain individuals that stand out, but I wish that as we go along, I'm I'm gonna read on the side um you know what what native nations were involved in the civil war what side they fought on because they fought on both sides Mm. um and anyway that's something that i feel like needs to get more attention but yeah absolutely um so yeah we're gonna take a break and then come back with chapter two uh anything else you want to say no goober p what is a goober p that i i don't I think I want to clarify this because people might be confused. We forgot to <laughs> we forgot to say what a goober pee is. Why yeah. why did why did we choose <laughs> goober pee for a name? <laughs> so goober pee is an old timey way to talk about a peanut. Um, so it's like an old fashioned <laughs> fra- like name for a peanut, which is not the most exciting, but 
um, like during this time period, people wouldn't have wouldn't necessarily have called peanuts peanuts. They would have been called goober peas. <laughs> and uh, I've always just thought it was a great name. Like, why did we ever change away from goober pea? Is my big question. But yeah, during the Civil War, there you know there was a good amount of peanuts. The peanuts crop still today is predominantly grown in warmer areas. So like in Southern States and, um, of course called goober peas. And, um, I remember when I first started learning about the civil war and like really spending time with it and like going to battlefields, getting to know folks who also like really into the civil war, they were like talking about goober peas. And I was like, what the heck, what, what are you guys talking about? And, Turns out they were talking about peanuts and there's this Civil War era song all about goober peas and it's just a catchy little tune and I've always loved it. So since I heard the song and I like peanuts and why would you ever go away from a goober pea name, um, it's just a good kind of encapsulation of some of the joy of that time period a, a goober pea and jelly sandwich <laughs> yeah. can you can you give us like four bars of the go- eaten goober peas i will not pain you with that <laughs> i've heard i've heard her sing it as pretty good um okay we'll we'll take a short break and come back with uh chapter two okay we're back um mexico will poison us so this is this Chap- is chapter oh, two chapter two mm-hmm. titled mexico will poison us and um the Mexican-American War, sometimes talked about as one of the most unjust wars, was largely about land acquisition and closely tied to um, manifest the idea of manifest destiny, which at that point in time was largely a goal of the, the Democrats, the Southern Democrats especially. Well, okay, so jumping in, right, again, like we were saying, both of us grew up in the West, kind of this area that was the target of Manifest Destiny in a lot of ways, right? The Pacific Northwest, the West Coast, all of that. California. California, Remember, you're from California. All right. True, true, true. (laughs) You are. Um, That's no knock, by the way. I'm not anti- Yeah, agreed. You know, but Kate- It's a beautiful state. That that was a little inside baseball. But anyway, what were you saying? (laughs) So I think what's really interesting about Manifest Destiny is that- in the mid 1800s it's kind of this like political tool whereas today in the west right where we live and work it's not seen that way it's seen as this like social movement of americans and i just i was struck by that and i you know i talk about manifest destiny in my job Mm -hmm. working with the public today, as do you. It's a topic that we both deal with in a very different context than like Civil War era. But this was an interesting and important refresher, just like give me that like political lens of Manifest Destiny that was the reality of it during the time, as opposed to kind of how I almost feel like it's been romanticized Especially in the West, you know, people talk about like, go West, oh, young man, manifest destiny. Yeah. Every John Wayne movie, every, I know. every crappy Hollywood, yeah, and churches. So it was like refreshing yeah. to be like, yeah, this is the actual truth behind manifest destiny as opposed to just this like 
intangible concept that was propelling a new generation of Americans, you know, forward and whatnot. The, The part that I find most fascinating about Manifest Destiny is that it holds the human being, it gives the human being power over the landscape. Yeah. It is there for you to um, manipulate it so that you can become wealthy and just totally, I mean, the, it, it, it doesn't say totally dominate, but that's <laughs> essentially what happens. Well, the know? landscape and Our, all the living things contained within. Right. Right. Like people, yeah. plants, animals, waterways. The the air, the air, the grass, mm-hmm. the soil. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, what's the big storm in the Midwest? The Dust Bowl? Yeah, <laughs> the Dust Bowl. <laughs> Without Manifest Destiny, the Dust Bowl doesn't happen. I mean, the man- I if mean, you could argue the manifest, that Manifest Destiny is one of the, the, the most consequential parts of American history. Okay, I agree that that argument could hold water. I do wonder if we think it's oh, it's probably. one of the most consequential because we're in the West and like surrounded by yeah those but ideas I, all the time. But that being said, I don't disagree. I think that like manifest destiny was a necessary prerequisite for a lot of this sectional and regional tension over like U.S. expansion. Right. And the future of slavery in the United States and all of the politics like it was kind of the tinder that was lighting that fire of tension and strife and difference. So I agree. I think it's hugely consequential. We could have and, a manifest destiny podcast, actually. Uh, no, that just feels wrong. But we but <laughs> that feels so wrong. But there's Let's a lot of examining. glorify manifest destiny. No, not not glorify. <laughs> I know, I I'm know. talking about like really uh, dissect it because yeah, um, it doesn't get talked about enough. I think it's still or affecting. It, it us. gets talked about only in one way, right? Like yeah. only in like a yeah. There's not maybe not enough criticism. About it, because I feel like it still affects um, like the way we look at climate change, our relationship with the land. Yeah. Or even just a lot of problem, like not problems, but like obstacles. Mm -hmm. I think Manifest Destiny definitely impacts people are like, let me just out engineer it or let me me go and conquer that mountain. Pull my bootstraps up a little bit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's kind of that mindset of Americans that man gets us into trouble. We're not going to accept the land how it is. We're going to shape the land into how we want it to be. Right. We're going to change those rivers and chop down those forests. Yeah. And And if you're a farmer or timber man or whatever out there, I'm not coming at you personally. I'm just saying generally. Yeah. Like as a big This has been an American problem. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Anyway. Um, I want to read the last um, two sentences of the first chapter to get us into the second chapter. Okay. The manifest destiny that represented hope for white Americans thus spelled doom for red Americans, and it also lit a slow fuse to a powder keg that blew the United States apart in 1861. Dun, dun, dun. So we're, we're, um, Mexico will poison us, chapter two. Um, James K. Polk, you want to say anything about Polk? Polk. One of the most expansionist-minded presidents. Does he have a nickname? Do you know? Uh, not that head? I know of. I full disclosure, not a big Polk fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, not I mean, not just because of this. Like I've, yeah, Polk is he's a, he's a thorn in my side. Yeah. Um, 
but I don't know if he has a nickname. We could look it up and see if he has a nickname. So um, he was very, but like, so Polk was very, he was elected on kind of an expansionist minded platform. That was a big part of his presidency and kind of like what defined his term in, or his like time in office. It was his aim. His aim was to acquire that. Yeah. Thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he, of course, kind of latched on to the idea of manifest destiny and paired it with that expansion and that acquisition of territory, of land. Um, one of the big chunks of land, so they were looking to, Polk was looking to acquire land from then Mexico and then also um, kind of the Pacific Northwest, where we are. Because there was a like a a treaty, not a treaty, with, no, like a like a competition between the U.S. and the British. So he yeah. was like looking for the Pacific Northwest, and then parts of what would later become California, and then the Southwest. But a treaty with Britain was signed to to acquire Oregon. Kind we, of. I mean, we to secure both, Oregon north of the forty ninth parallel. Yeah, but like. We both work in fields that North say, to the 49th. okay, so if your two neighbors get together, Jesse, and they decide, you know what, we're really, we want to take their backyard. And so we're going to sign a treaty together. Are you talking about Native Americans right yeah, now? Yeah, because right. that treaty with Britain did not involve a single Native nation. Right. Um, And so You're like, saying, yeah, I, I am saying that it's not until the treaty with the Nez Perce or the Yakima or the Cayuse Walla Walla Umatilla, it's not until those treaties are ratified by Congress and signed that this land that we're now on is becomes officially part of the United States. Right. Because up until that point, the U.S. and Britain can say whatever they want with their fancy treaties. Right. But it's not their land. But to... To get the to get you know north, or you know what would become New Mexico mm-hmm. and California, yeah, uh, we we're gonna have to go to war with Mexico. Have to. Well, <laughs> that was that was the view from the administration at the time. Definitely. Okay, so that happens. We're not you know this is not a book about the Mexican War, American War, but y- go ahead. They go all the way to Mexico City, the U.S. Army. Mexico doesn't want to give it up. Shocker. Oh, uh, yeah. But in the end, they agree to give up what is now California, um, Arizona, and New Mexico, right? Um, I'd have to look at a map. Okay. Sorry. Sorry to put you on the spot. But anyway. A large th- chunk of land in the Southwest. <laughs> right. <clears throat> but um, one thing that we can say yeah. about Polk, about the acquisition of land from Mexico and I'm doing air quotes here with the British right up in the Northwest is that this idea that Polk had his expansionist minded views. He wanted to acquire territory and add it into the United States nation. And he was leaning on this justification of manifest destiny to kind of make that happen to like, um, explain like why is this important for the united states and he was really leaning on the concept of manifest destiny but what's fascinating and it ties in with this idea of kind of the slaveholders interest in expansion is that the strongest supporters of manifest destiny as a concept so hence 
the idea of expansion, were pro-slavery Southerners. And I just found this fascinating given that this is not what we hear when we talk about Manifest Destiny today. We don't learn about that kind of pro-slavery interest in the, the, the idea of Manifest Destiny or the act of westward expansion. And so, you know, when we talk about Polk, we can't necessarily separate Manifest Destiny from that pro-slavery aim and influence in expansion. Right. Um, and so, of, of course, as the nation expands, then this question of slavery keeps coming up, right? Will that new territory, whether it's what would later become New Mexico or later become California, or, you know, will it have slavery or will it not have slavery? Right. And I just wanted to read, this is what's cool about McPherson. He'll, he'll, he'll quote Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mm. Um, and this is a great quote. I want to read it. His prophecy that, quote, the United States will conquer Mexico, but it will be as the man swallows the arsenic, which brings him down in turn. Mexico will poison us. And so that's exactly what you're talking about. This, this new territory, is it going to be uh, free? Is it not? Mm-hmm. Um, and now... One settling that question, I think, is what Emerson right. is talking about. Like settling the question of these new lands that are being added into the nation. And this question of is it going to have slavery or not is the thing that starts getting us on this road towards eventually what we now know uh, is disunion. So leading up to the presidential election of 48. 1848. 1848. <laughs> uh, obviously. I know. Um, you, you've got, um, well, Kate thinks this is hilarious how I say it. As I, as I read Wilmot prov- Proviso? Proviso? Tomato, tomato? <laughs> I, I say in my mind every time I read it, Wilmo Provisio. <laughs> and that's just how I've remembered it. But what is the Wilmot uh, Proviso Proviso? however you say it. Yeah. So like, so we were talking about what's going on in these new territories, right? Polk, the government, pro-slavery Southerners want to expand and acquire this territory. But if we kind of like zoom back out into DC to look at the politics, we have this key thing happening in 1846, which is the proposal of the Wilmot Proviso. Now you have me second guessing how it's pronounced. (laughs) You want to say Wilmo Provisio, huh? I do not want to say Wilmo Provisio, (laughs) no. Um, I don't know why. But basically, this was a piece of legislation that was introduced by a man with the last name Wilmot. And it was, I'm summarizing here. But it was basically legislation that said any territory that was acquired from Mexico would not have slavery. So, Jesse, can you imagine? Was Did this go over well? Was this smooth sailing? What? Did, yeah. I mean, no. It, it was... <laughs> yeah. when, when people say, oh, po- the state of politics has never been worse, mm. um, this might be one of the eras that you could go back and cite. Like, uh, actually... Yeah, uh, we were pretty divided back then, well, leading up to the Civil War. Um, I and mean, this is when people in Congress would hit each other with canes. They not would... to mention, like, 
during the, well, we'll get to this, but when they were debating the Compromise of 1850, so a few years later, people were literally having fist fights in Congress. So it's like, you know, some perspective to shine a little light on. But obviously, like Jesse said, the Wilmot Proviso, oh gosh, now I'm like going to (laughs) just second guess myself every time. Um, The Wilmot legislation, it was not, it was very divisive. And there's this like key moment that this, this legislation kind of marked a shift. McPherson notes it. I also noted it when I was going through and what this did. So what it was, was saying any territory from Mexico wouldn't have slavery, would be free, right? So the, so slavery could not expand into those new, what would become new states, which was obviously, you know, Southerners, pro-slavery Southerners perceived this as a threat to their identity, to their economic livelihood, to their way of life. Because if slavery could no longer expand, then representation in the House of Representatives and in the Senate would swing more towards states without slavery, free states that then could pass more legislation that was not friendly to the interests of slaveholders and those slave states. And so Southerners perceived this as like an impending immediate threat to, you know, their identities in in a lot of ways. But what this did was it changed the nature of American politics. So we go from a two-party system in the U.S., a pretty much two-party system in the U.S., so we go from a party system, party politics, to regional politics. And we can, like, pinpoint it to this stinking moment. Proviso. Right. Proviso. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's this point at which you start to see Southern Democrats opposing this legislation and Northern Democrats not necessarily always opposing it. And Northern Whigs embracing the the proviso proviso, and southern whigs opposing it so you see this split not along party lines but along regional lines and it's all wrapped up in this one biggest issue of the united states at that time which of course is the institution of slavery yeah do you want to talk about the election of 1848 do you want to go straight to the compromise no, let's talk about the election. I think that's kind of fun. Um, before we do, I want to introduce uh, um, one of my... This is this is something that I'm bringing to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, the This is the introduction of some of the best nicknames <laughs> of this time period. So this is this is a segment on the podcast we're going to be doing on the Goober P podcast called uh, Nickname Watch. Ooh. And uh, we're each going to pick out our favorite nickname. And I'd just like to give a shout out to old Fuss and Feathers, Mr. Winfield Scott. Um, that's a that's a great nickname. Uh, and Winfield our, Scott, sidebar, he'll come up back again at this, you know, in the 1860-61. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because he's a military man. Wasn't he? And he was born before the, con- the Constitution? Uh, or around that time. But Something like that. Yeah. Um, he's, I know he's an older gentleman by this time. Um. And I'd also, so honorable mention is, um, um, is it Henry Clay? Yeah. Henry Clay with Mr. Wig. <laughs> and also Zachary Taylor, all rough and ready. All 
rough and ready. And uh, I've now given that handle to our our dog, um, and now she's known as Lil Rough and Ready because she's pretty rough and ready. Lil Rough and Ready. Uh, Do you have any that you'd like to put forth as a nickname? I do, but I'm going to actually unveil it when we get to him. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so it's a great nickname. Is it Lincoln? No, it's oh, not Lincoln. Okay. We haven't talked about Lincoln yet. <laughs> I know, but <laughs> I mean the I'm chapters just don't talk about Lincoln. Okay. Um, although he'll forever be my favorite nickname. The the point of nickname watch is just that I think as a culture we need to get back to the use of more nicknames. It helps me memorize people or remember people better. Because mm-hmm. um, I know right away like old fuss and feathers. Oh yeah, that's Winfield Scott. Yeah. Um, the. I like it because it's like a fun descriptive way to like mark and remember people. Definitely. So then you, it's almost like you, you remember some of their characteristics too. It's so like rough and ready. To me, I get an image in my head of like someone but, who's just kind of like rough and tumble. Yeah. They're going to go for something. They're not yeah. too worried about the, you know, making it look pretty. You're not talking about an ice no. skater. Yeah. You're talking about old rough and ready. Old rough and ready. Okay. Um, so eight, the election of 1848. So that that was the segment of nickname watch. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So before we like dive into the election itself, we should know that there was an important kind of counterpoint to the Wilmot proviso. 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 Gosh. Um, kind of as we're segueing into that election. And there was another... Um, anyway, so this other idea that came up as almost like the counterpoint to Wilmot was the idea of popular sovereignty. Mm. Um, this was put forward by a different legislator by the name of Cass and the idea of popular sovereignty was, you know, it leaned a little more pro Southern in practice. Right. And popular sovereignty was this concept that a new state or not even a state a territory should determine based on their own votes, whether they would enter the union as a state with or without slavery. So it was this idea that the territories, the population that could vote at that time, which let's just all remember many people were excluded from the ability to vote at this time. So the population that could vote would vote on whether they wanted their state constitution when they applied for statehood to have slavery or to not have slavery. Right. So that was kind of this counterpoint that was put forward as a response almost to Wilmot. Right. And then we get into the presidential election where um, it's one of the first presidential elections. So this is 1848 where this idea of regionalism or not even that we talk in the civil war world, they talk about it a lot as sectionalism. So you'll like hear us using that word quite a bit because it gets beyond regional. Regional to me feels like there's a difference between the Northeast and Pennsylvania, Ohio, right? But sectionalism is a little bit more big umbrella. And so this presidential election was really where we start to see this idea of sectionalism across the U.S. impacting the result. What are some of the main... Are, are Southerners at this point, it's hard for modern people to look back, I think, and it's like, you guys, why don't you just give up slavery? This is crazy. What what are you guys, you know, like, what are they afraid of? What are the yeah. two, I, and I think this is going to, we're going to probably examine this more as we go, but like, why are Southern states so 
I mean, we have the economy, yes, but are they? A, is it fear? Are they thinking of Haiti? And McPherson does touch on this on page fifty-seven, I think. Um, but what do you, what do you what do you want to say to that? Because it's frustrating. I read it. I'm like, you guys, we could have avoided this massive war. Just give up slavery. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's where that's where the novice in in, in me comes in. Well, those I are think, the types of questions I. I, I think mean, about. no, it's a good question. I think so. How I had it explained to me when I was a college student, when I was learning about the Civil War and kind of like what led up to the Civil War, like when we were talking about this time period. Yeah. Because again, you know, we were young, idealistic college kids being like, well, you know. obviously slavery is wrong. Yeah. It's like it's not even a question anymore. Yeah. You know? And the professor was great. And he just kind of challenged us to think about, like, just take, for example, you, you're like, you have this car and this car enables you to get from point A to point B. And this car enables you to take care of your family and to get food and to, you know, earn a living. Like you have to have your car to get to your job or whatever. And let me finish the it's so hard for us to imagine life without cars today as modern 2024 americans right is it hard for you to imagine life without vehicles such a brutal comparison though i know it's so i'm just relaying this is the example that was given to us as college students to think about like vehicles are this thing in our society that's almost ubiquitous yeah so what he was trying to get us to think about is this is a modern thing that we're so used to seeing we integrate it into different parts of our life and our culture Mm -hmm. as vehicles right in Mm -hmm. terms of getting groceries and all of that and so what he was saying is southerners at this time period had integrated slavery into all of these different parts about of their life of how they went about day to day of like simply like how they earned money yeah how they provided for their family how they worked yeah um and more than that like who they were as people. And I think that's where this question you're asking of like, why didn't they just give it up <laughs> comes in? Is this piece of identity that's tied to the yeah. South and, and slavery? And if you, even if you're a non, if you don't own slaves at this point, you're up, you're, you're so broke. You're, you're broke flatter than a run over hat and you're white back then at least in the hierarchy, in the hierarchy, in the social hierarchy, you're still above, above quote unquote. Yeah. And I think that's another part of it. But I, I just, yeah, reading it and it, like reading some of the quotes of the polit- the, su- the Southern politicians in particular who are pro-slavery, slavery, mm-hmm. I'm just like, man, you guys, wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's not, it's still gnarly for me, even though. I've read about it. I've heard about it. It's and still like, man. I think like you, it It should be. It should be, yeah. It's not yeah. something we should ever like become Forget. Des- desensitized to. Right. Um, is this idea of like how brutal exactly. and awful it was. And I think that, um, you know, it's so much of the reluctance of Southerners to even entertain the thought of not having slavery Mm -hmm. is tied in with like how they identify. So 
I did a lot of reading on this topic previously, like years ago, on this idea of um, nationalism. So like across, broadly across the United States, like white, Amer- white? N- no, no, just nation- um, American nationalism. Okay. You know, like you go to a rodeo and the right. national anthem plays and everyone gets yeah. tears in their eyes and the flag is ran around the track on a horseback yeah. or whatever. Right. Um, so like the idea of like, how do we create nationalism? But then more than that, in the American South at this time, this time period, the South was kind of uh, breaking away from that broad American nationalism and actually creating their own unique take on it, which I call Southern nationalism. And looking at the role that slavery had to play in the creation of this unique identity. regional identity of Southern nationalism. Um, and it's huge. It's all over. Like, you look at the traditional areas that contribute to like a place's sense of nationalism and sense of self. And it's like, you know, economy, morals, values, religion, um, industry, all of these things. And you find that slavery goes across all of those in the South's idea of like what it means to be Southern. Um, there's a great quote, in McPherson that he pulls from. Um, and he's talking about um, a Southern soldier at the time. And the guy, the soldier replies, no true Southern would, uh, would submit to social and sectional degra- degradation. And then death is preferable to acknowledged inferiority. That's like a slight, glimpse into the idea like that mindset yeah of many southerners at the time death is preferable to acknowledge inferiority or guys like john c calhoun yeah um wow his quotes are hard to read that's for sure probably won't be reading those he's a he's a rough he's Um, a rough one the i used to live in charleston yeah south carolina which was his yeah he was from south carolina Mm -hmm. was his home state and this was like 2014, but there's this huge plaza in downtown Charleston and Whoa. there's a giant statue. Maybe it's gone now. We should look up if it's gone, but there's a giant statue a of Calhoun? John. Yes. <laughs> Dude, is there any kind of interpretation or, or text with this statue that you remember? Um, there was a sign. I don't ask me what it said. I when don't. When you saw it, were you like, Whoa. I mean, do you remember how you... No, I mean, I think that's was one of the interesting things about living in South Carolina, though. And again, this was 2014, so a lot has changed since 2014. Yeah. Um, But there was also, like, the Daughters of the Confederacy Museum there. And, like, you know, just a lot of... Man. Yeah. It's just different. It's like... Ah, dude. We should go to South Carolina. We should, but... And just, you know... I, I, I think I'm showing too much of my... I was I was going to try to have more of a neutral... I mean, how can you be neutral? You can't really be neutral with the Civil War. I mean, right. the good... The good side... The better think, side won. Yeah, but I think, but, like, it is important to look at some of the attitudes and some of the things that were going on. Right. 
And like the idea of like a separate Southern nationalism within the United States, like what can we learn from that so that as we go forward and as there's conversations going on in our world today about like blah, 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 division, you know, all of this, we can not just like go into those conversations, but we can take what we know and then say, how do I apply this knowledge of the past to educate more folks or to like help curb the divisions and instead find those bridges, find those commonalities? I don't know. What's the, what's the, um, the phrase that you repeat? It's a, it's kind of like your mantra, uh, when you come into difficult situations well, I have a few. Oh, yeah, there's one about um, something about seeking understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, one you... of mine is assume good intent, especially with strangers. Yeah. And seek understanding. But follow up on seek understanding that I've found more recently is understanding is not agreeing. And I uh, love that one. That's where did you get that one? A coworker, that's, another person. Oh, yeah. That is, that's. That's good. That's what we're trying to do right here. So yeah. if anybody uh, listens to this, if you're like, man, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Really, that's a big goal of mine is to try to understand some of this history. Well, and I, again, like even if you like I vehemently disagree with, you know, what the South was fighting for and like yeah. doing and all of this. But I think that there's value in understanding like what happened and why. Sure. Sure. And why should we care about it today in 2024? Yeah. Um, yeah. So understanding is not agreeing is my upgraded version of seek understanding. But okay. If we backtrack just a little bit, right. We talked about presidential election of 1848. Mm-hmm. Zachary Taylor is eventually elected. Um, he's an interesting guy. I actually. All rough and ready. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> he's an interesting guy he's got great nicknames but he's kind of one of those interesting historical figures who i feel like on the surface you'd look at and you'd be like oh gosh you know like he owned a lot of slaves he had multiple plantations um he was southern and all of this but when you kind of get down to his like his actions as president there's so much gray area And I think that's fascinating when we get historical figures like that, right? Because not one single person on this earth, whether they're in 1848 or 2024, is so, you know, all good or all bad, right? We're a mixture of all of these interesting, nuanced choices and decisions and beliefs and opinions. And I think Zachary Taylor's kind of a cool example of that. And he's, yeah, while being a slaveholder, he's also getting... um, He's getting advice from William H. Uh, Seward about, yeah. you know, about the immorality of, yeah, and, of slavery and, and expansion of slavery. McPherson has this great phrase. He describes Taylor as a free soil wolf in the clothing of a state's rights sheep. Because so many Southerners went along with voting for him and supporting him, both in the election and then in his first, like, bit of time in Congress. Yeah. Um. But then when he like kind of gets to make decisions as president, he's really pro free soil. And just to backtrack, free soil is like anti-expansion of slavery. Right. Um, So when we say free soil, 
That's what we're talking about. The group of people who believed um, that slavery should not expand. Yeah. You can't take your plantation from South Carolina yeah. and move it to Texas. The, um, yeah. Just could you read that again? Because I feel like that's a, is that a McPherson bit yeah. or is that a quote from somebody? Uh, I believe it's McPherson. He says free, Taylor was free soil wolf in the clothing of a state's rights sheep. Oh, man. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I mean... Or, like, I think, like, Trojan horse, right? Yeah, Maybe sure. a little less dramatic than that. He, the way he writes makes me want to keep reading. Yeah. It's almost like... It's not narrative style. It's just interesting. It's, it's yeah. good writing, so... I love all the, the nicknames and the little side stories. Yeah, it's like he includes personality some of the humanity, humanity. Yeah, the personality. A lot of humanity in it, yeah. I like that. Um, well, anyway, 1848, Zachary Taylor's elected. He's an interesting historic figure, not one that can be easily like cut and dry, you know, placed into a category, which I think is always kind of cool because I think that's humanity always all the time. Um, but at the same time that this is happening, also in 1848, way across the continent in our neck of the woods, Jesse, what is discovered in what would later become the great state of California? Gold. <laughs> Gold. <laughs> <laughs> that shiny yellow stuff. Hence the name, the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, I know. Fun fact. That, How that long did it take team. for you to realize that, like when you were a kid? Oh, for I mean, I didn't realize it until probably I was in college. You know, I, I was like, oh, whoa, 49ers. Yeah. The, like the year. Yeah. You know? I didn't get the Trailblazers thing for the longest time. Oh, so me either. Portland's NBA team is the Portland Trailblazers. <laughs> yeah. And um, Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail. And I yeah. did not get that until like recently. Cool. Cool. Um, I mean, I'm. I'm not props, endorsing the Oregon Trail. But props but to them for sneakily putting history into their definitely, mascot. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. What are the Seahawks? I mean, nothing. Oh, there's, there's no history to that, is there? Well, they're, they're Osprey. Oh. oh, or was it like Port Trade? Port. Seahawks? We'll have to look into the history of the Seahawks. Port Trade? Yeah, like the Seaport Trade. Oh, no. It's a reference to Ospreys. Is it really? Yeah, because Ospreys are often called Seahawks. So they went more of a bi biology route. I guess. Lame. <laughs> <laughs> I think my role on this podcast is just to interrupt you. No. Uh, well, okay. Sorry about that. So gold discovered in California yeah. in 1848. Um, and then by 1849, news of this gets back to the United States because, of course, California and the entire West Coast is not part of the United States at that time. Oh, actually, but, there's some territory. Pla some places are territory. But even before the gold rush, you had, um, I think the most populous year of the Oregon Trail to that point was 1843, where you no. had a lot. 18 In 1848? But people had already started coming out here on oh, the yeah, Oregon yeah. Trail. Definitely. So they, Definitely. but once gold is discovered, they peel off. Um, to go south. To go south. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> anyway. Um, but... News of this gets back to the United States, to Washington, D.C., and then more people head out to California because they want to strike it rich. Um, yeah. And you're not getting America's best and brightest uh, going west. Not, I mean, maybe sometimes. But these, um, sometimes they're down on, they're down and out. There are, um, it's a they're, cross they're, section. They're criminals. <laughs> they're, they're broke. So, not always. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
I'm just saying, you're not getting America's best and brightest okay. heading west for gold. Um, or to go to the Willamette Valley. But as more Americans are traveling west, whether it's to California or to the Oregon country, um, it's making it more, there's more population out there. So there's more of a push for California to go from territory status to state status. Right. Um, and this question of what will California be as a state? Will it be a state with or without slavery? And this is going to underpin a lot of what's coming the, in the early years of Taylor's presidency. The implication, right, would be more representation in Congress. Yes, for one side a, or the other. Moving from a territory to state. Yes. And you have politicians kind of putting this, kicking this ball down the road constantly during this time. Like, oh, yeah, well, I mean, we know this is going to explode, but we're going to keep kind well, of... You know, this this question of slavery and the yeah. balance in Congress, we're just going to kind of keep yeah. kicking this along until... Which brings us to the Compromise of 1850. Good, yes. So um, this is a few years into Zachary Taylor's presidency, like we said earlier. And this Compromise of 1850 was brought forward by Henry Clay. Jesse, what's the nickname? Mr. Wig. <laughs> <laughs> It reminds me of uh, Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Uh, Mr. Pink, Mr. White, Mr. Wig. <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> I've never seen Reservoir Dogs, but I'm glad I that don't know if you would like it, but... Time will tell. We should watch it. Time will tell. Anyway, Mr. Wig. Uh, Mr. Wig, a.k.a. Henry Clay. So it's 1850, and he brings forward this... It's actually a set of eight resolutions that makes up this quote-unquote compromise of 1850. And... The debates on these eight resolutions that he's trying to kind of bill as a package, these last all throughout this summer. So just imagine you're in Washington, D.C. Anyone ever been to Washington, D.C.? Because I have in the summer and it's muggy. It is humid and it's hot. And when I went, obviously, there was air conditioning. But during this time in 1850... There's no air conditioning, and it's hot and muggy, and... You just have to go sit in the root cellar to cool <laughs> off. God. Yeah, but, like, these legislators in Congress, they're not able to go to a root cellar to debate this these yeah. compromise bills, right? So it's hot, it's slow, Everybody's it's a long summer. pissed off. Yeah, people are mad. Um, and so we have these debates within Congress all throughout that summer, and this is where we see like Calhoun, John C. Calhoun, which actually found out that that statue. Oh, right. We had a dog interruption yeah. earlier. So we took a, took a moment to see if they had yes. removed the... And in June of 2020, the city of Charleston voted unanimously to remove the statue of Calhoun from Calhoun there you go. Square. Good yeah. job, Charleston. Faith in humans is restored. Yeah, thank goodness. I mean, yeah. pretty late. Probably shouldn't have gone up in the first place. Better late than never. But better late than never. We wanted to make sure we mentioned that. Um, but anyway, so 1850, we've got Calhoun, John C. Calhoun, who's from South Carolina. He's very pro-slavery. At this time, he's also like kind of on death's doorstep. He has tuberculosis. Yeah. He's older than the hills and twice as moldy. <laughs> He's barely so, hanging on. We've got Calhoun kind of on the pro-slavery side of these debates. And then on the opposite side, we have a man named William Seward. Did he have a nickname like, that you liked? Um, Unless... No. I haven't read it yet. Okay. I'm okay. sure he does, but... We can look into um, it. We like Seward. Yeah. So Seward's kind of on the opposite end of this spectrum of these debates. So William Seward, which again, 
you know, for anyone who is familiar with the Civil War already, you will recognize that name. He's in Lincoln's cabinet, you know, when Lincoln is in the president's office. And so Seward's a guy that we'll continue to see. But at this time, he's in Congress and he's kind of on the anti-slavery, that free soil side of these debates in Congress over the Compromise of 1850. So there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of physical fights <laughs> over this set of bills. And there's a lot of frustration. And in the middle of all of this, there's a surprise. And that is Jesse. Well, I, b- before we talked about that, I just yeah. wanted to say that we're already hearing discussions of preserving the union right. at this time. Um, we've got people like Daniel Webster um, talking about I'm 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 speaking up to in in favor of preserving the union. So that already yeah. tells you how bad it's getting. Yeah, and there were conventions, there were conventions held in the southern states about like you know southern the southern states banding together and you know all of this like yeah. do we want to stay in the union so so there's this surprise that happens during this time and that is the president dies yeah very sad i was reading i guess i'd never like read about how taylor died i yeah. thought it was very kind of a uh, sad but also like kind you, of random you had read about it you just forgot were reminded sure yeah, yeah. um and Jesse, correct me if I'm like getting this wrong, but it was like a hot, humid day. And then he ate a bunch of raw fruit and mm. iced milk. And then within a few days had died of it's gastroenteritis. Like a, yeah. Which I was like, dang. Iced milk sounds really good. <laughs> I could I could go for some right now. Yeah. Well, anyway. Yeah, so, you're not supposed to mix like cranberries and milk, right? What? Yeah. What? Yeah. And old, 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 old rough and ready could probably slam some fruit. You yeah. Know? So well, anyway, so the poor fella, Zachary Taylor, President Taylor, dies. And then he is um his vice president, Millard Fillmore, steps in. That's a, a hilarious name, by the way. Millard Fillmore. Yeah, that's it is a, great. a good name. He would have good nicknames. But so Fillmore steps in, and this is kind of a turning point in these debates over the Compromise of 1850 during this, you know, hot, muggy D.C. summer. After Fillmore takes over, he's like a little bit more... uh, He's willing to put the bills forward. Actually, strike that. Millard stepping in as president... Um, kind of gets this ball rolling. And the compromise will eventually pass in pieces, not as a whole package, but as separate pieces. And a lot of this is due to the person who I think has the best nickname we've seen so far. Oh, nice. Nickname watch. Nickname watch. Wee wee. Uh, <laughs> Stephen Douglas. Stephen Douglas, congressman from the great state of Illinois, home to another great congressperson who later will have an even greater career in the Oval Office. Stephen Douglas, his nickname, get this, it's wonderful, the Little Giant. Oh, hey. Because he was little. He was yeah. only like 5'4", but he had this like big voice and like big was a powerful orator, big personality. The and he was giant. able to get this done. He was able to piecemeal get these different like resolutions through Congress one at a time. Do you think that's where the the Disney movie the, the Little Giants came from? 
<laughs> I didn't even know there was a movie. Is that about soccer? It's about football. Oh. Um, but hey, that reminds me of another nickname watch. Uh the little magician Van Buren. Oh. Isn't that a, isn't that his nickname? Yeah, did you do you Martin know Martin Van Buren? Do you know where does it come from? Actually, I don't know. Okay. That should be another part of wig watch or no, pff, not not wig watch. <laughs> uh nickname watch is the backstory? Yeah. That could be its own podcast. And we could do a whole section on NBA nicknames. Oh man, we yeah, maybe we maybe we should Well, anyway, you're you're talking about Stephen Douglas. Yeah. I didn't mean to. So Stephen Douglas, who the is little giant, the little giant. He's only five four, so it's kind of a, it's kind of like a lovingly teasing nickname that he gets, but, um, he's able to get the job done. So he gets these set of resolutions through Congress and the final compromise of 1850. I'm just gonna run through it really quickly. What was passed in that final compromise? Um, California, as a state, was admitted into the Union. Okay, so that's one part. The slave trade was prohibited in the District of Columbia, so the capital, the, the nation's capital. Slave trade pro- prohibited. Even domestic slave trade. The the slave the, trade. Yeah. Yes. Any slave trade. Period. Not, okay. Correct. Um, also passed in the Compromise of 1850 was the agreement to pay Texas $10 million dollars $10 million to settle their border debate or their border uh, squabble with New Mexico. Uh, there would be a stronger fugitive slave law. And we'll touch on that at the end again. And then Utah and New Mexico territories would, would uh, be without prohibitions on slavery. Mm-hmm. So the Compromise of 1850 was this kind of package of those different pieces that, taken as a whole, we now know as the Compromise of 1850. In all of those, how Stephen Douglas was able, or the Little Giant was able to get those through was by playing into the sectional lines of division in Congress. So he was able to pass the, you know, the slave trade prohibited in the District of Columbia on its own with pretty much no support from Southerners. But then he was able to then pass a separate one about a stronger fugitive slave law on its own, pretty much with no support from the Northerners in Congress. So it was like this piecemeal passage where there was, again, this sectional divide Mm -hmm. over a party divide. So more important than the party divisions were the sectional divisions over the, the issue of slavery. And... McPherson mentions this, but I think it's worth noting as well is that kind of like the issue of slavery at that time led to the end of the two party system in the United States, right? It led to the end of this two party system and more into this system of regionalism, sectionalism. But Jesse, what I thought was interesting is obviously in today's world in the United States, we have that two party system back. So I think like just interesting tangent. Yeah. But we have two party, um, that system's broken up and spread out all over the place. Yeah. It's not as sectional. it's not really related to. No, but I I just. I guess you could, you could say, you know, rural city divide. Rural urban. Yeah. Urban. But I do think it's interesting. Like 
the two-party system, the party system went away, and we had this era of sectional politics. Civil war happens, reconstruction happens, but now we're back in the two-party system. It's just kind of an interesting, like, mm-hmm. wheel. I don't know. Right. Um, oh. so, but, so 1850, this set of compromising bills are passed, and then there's all these accounts of joy in the capital after the passage of these these various bills that are, you know, make up the compromise. Um, they were talking about how this is the final settlement of these problems, these differences between the sections, these areas of the country, which, of course, now hindsight's twenty twenty. We know this was not the final settlement of those questions and divisions and issues. Um, and, you know, one of the things that McPherson ends this chapter on is really like where we're going to really start gearing up towards, you know, talking more about the institution of slavery and how it was this division point between these two regions of the country. And he talks about one of the least debated parts of the Compromise of 1850 was that stronger fugitive slave law. And yet, when that becomes, when that comes into practice, when that fugitive slave law is in, in effect, and when Americans, both North and South, are dealing with it, that is one of the biggest things, the most divisive things in practice. So it's interesting. It was the least debated, but once it becomes like the law of the land, it's one of the most divisive things. Yep. Kind of bringing us inching the story closer to where we all know it's going the civil war yeah so the next decade um there's a lot to talk about in this next upcoming 10 years um before leading up to the civil war yeah so we're ending Um, right now in 1850 1850 yeah of course lincoln gets elected in 1860 so we've got about 10 years until we're at that stage Mm -hmm. um and so the next two chapters we'll cover uh, if you do have a copy of the book and you're interested in following along, is chapter three, An Empire for Slavery, and chapter four, Slavery, Rum, and Romanism. Ooh, intrigue. All right. Thank- um, so I think this concludes uh, episode one of the Goober P podcast. Are there any uh, closing thoughts you have, Kate, you want to share? I just keep coming back to this idea of this idea of how connected all of these things are, right? Expansion is connected to politics, which is connected to pro or anti-slavery positions, which is connected to the economy. Like it's just this, which is connected to like transportation and how things are getting around. And, you know, all of these things are just kind of coming together. And I think no matter where you are within the United States, you can find connections to this story. So that's all I have to say. Um, do you want me to to give you a, a, a Civil War nickname for this podcast? Oh, gosh. I don't know. <laughs> do you have one at the ready? No. Oh, okay. Well, I suggested to you earlier the, the old spicy bagel. <laughs> <laughs> Why does it have to be the old spicy bagel? Because in a lot of those nicknames. the stale spicy bagel? The, no, because you're not stale. I just thought okay, old right. is added to a lot of those nicknames. That's so true. I was just trying to think of like, 
you know, it might be kind of a fun thing to yeah. give each other nicknames while like we it. talk about other nicknames. I like it. Jesse, do you have, I'll have to think about a nickname for you. Yeah. But do you have any closing words before we end this very first inaugural episode of the yeah, Cooper Peapod? Just again, um, I just want to re re emphasize that um, I'm going to be trying to ask very uh, layman type questions. Um, and sometimes I apologize, I apologize if it's too crude or too basic or simple, but the idea behind that is just to get more people Mm -hmm. engaged in this history and not to feel pressure that you have to know everything. Um, just because it's fun to talk about. Um, it's an important story if you live in America, if you live in the United States. Yeah. And I just wouldn't, I just, I just want people to, to realize that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a civil war scholar, but well, I, it doesn't limit me from trying to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I you mean, know? neither of us are civil war scholars. You are. We're enthusiasts. You're enthusiastic. I mean, uh, Kate's, Kate's. Um, but also, yeah, like there's so much, like we haven't even talked about Lincoln yet. Oh yeah. And there's already so many cool storylines, right? Just looking at like. Zachary Taylor, all rough and ready. Yeah. He's a fascinating human, whether you love him or you hate him or whatever in between. Like, I learned that apparently Jefferson Davis is his former son-in-law. And Mm. when Taylor's in office, Jefferson Davis is in Congress. And so, like, there's there's, like this weird water under the bridge because they're on kind of opposing sides. So there's all kinds of interesting things to explore and uh are you are at the end of this book are you gonna explain to the people why jeff davis wasn't tried for treason i don't know that anyone can explain that it's pretty bizarre you gotta admit we'd have to go back to old andrew johnson old andrew johnson <laughs> oh, <laughs> i yeah um I, somehow we did an hour and a half and we didn't even mention the telegraph you know there's like a, i'm just thinking about all the stuff that we left out yeah i mean man yeah. We're leaving a lot of meat on the bone here. Yeah. So we'll come back for another nibble next week. <laughs> 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 All right. That's the conclusion of Goober P Podcast Episode 1. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time.